Welcome, everyone, back to the Brocast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and we've gotten the band back together today. Brandon Huffman is back. I won't say in studio, because we don't have a studio, and I won't say in person, because we're not in person, but Brandon Huffman is back. How are you, baby? Dude, you might not have a studio, but Dave, I based on recent reports that we are on the take to overrate certain recruiting classes. I am talking to you from my 5,000 square foot house. Sorry, that's my studio. It's 5,000 square foot. In the neighborhood next to Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. I have my guard dogs and my security guard details dogs all in the background barking. So I apologize in advance. I get it. Um, you're looking, you're higher on the hill than them, right? Like you look down into their houses, correct? Well, my studio is on equal level with them. The house is a little bit higher, but we all share the same lake. Right, right, right. You, you've given them some water rights to that lake because it was your lake, correct? You know, I know that, that, that they both have been through quite traumatic summers and, and recent months, years with their family. So I figured, you know, what better way to spend time with their family than to give them just a portion of the dock. They pay a, a nominal mortgage fee, but I'll tell you what, those guys respect the, lo- the lake. They pick up their trash. They don't go out too late at night. So, you know, they may get a bigger mortgage next or a lesser mortgage fee and a bigger dock. Yeah. Man of generosity and benevolence, Brandon Huffman pretty much how i've been described that's what my headstone's going to read yeah for sure well uh brandon is with us today because uh we're going to be talking about a subject near and dear to his heart um the washington huskies (laughs) Uh, yeah so uh ucla is heading up to montlake are we calling it that because i always just say seattle we, we call it Montlake when we've already said Seattle in the story, so we'll call it Montlake, which is really just a street. But Yeah, it's, it's stupid. It's like calling USC Figueroa. What, what I love about it is, you know, the, it's the 100,000 people that pile into Seattle every January 1st to go to a game at Husky Stadium to experience the greatest set. Oh, wait, no, 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 sorry. That's the Rose Bowl. So we're going <laughs> to this game. We'll be at the Okea setting. It's not a bad setting, you know, in September for the two games where it doesn't rain. You're 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 um, you're demonstrating your anti-Seattle bias as a resident for many years because mm-hmm. Husky Stadium is very cool. Like it's the entire cool. experience is extremely cool. Um, but all right, so uh, UCLA um, is fresh off a uh, uh, extremely boring win, but a win nonetheless over Arizona. Is that a fair way to describe it in your eyes? That that's a fair way of describing it. Yeah. Um, UCLA was, uh, I would say, um, one-dimensional offensively in that game, but that one dimension was very good, uh, the run game with Britton Brown and Zach Charbonnet, um, but couldn't throw the damn ball at all. Um, so where do you stand on this? Because the announcers were speculating it was the injury um, that was making him inaccurate, Dorian Thompson-Robinson were talking about. Um, I-, I was sort of on board with that in the first half, and then he was like... I mean, that, that throw to Casimir Allen kind of made it um, hard to swallow that argument because mm-hmm. that was a perfectly thrown ball with just the proper amount of zip on it, and he happened to drop it in the end zone. But uh, I don't know. Where do you stand on, uh, on what is going on with Dorian Thompson-Robinson? I don't think I'm buying the old injury excuse. I mean, as it is, are we still sure what shoulder he actually hurt? Because there seems to still be... <laughs> I am, which... I am certain it's his throwing shoulder. Um, okay. I, I, I think there was some some confusion about that, but uh, I'm certain based off um, the reports from my own eyes. 
I, I don't know that the injury is causing that much problem. I think this is, I mean, this is four years of what we've come to come to see. Just a mild inconsistency, I think, at times from him as a passer. I think it's convenient. It, it reminds me of the 2013-2014 USC seasons when they were referring to sanctions five years later. It's like at some point, it's not the sanctions, guys. As an aside, that was, um, I don't think it was appreciated enough, um, but that was my favorite part of my trolling tweets about the Clay Helton <laughs> situation, was continuing to talk about the sanctions, which were literally 11 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. That was, that was, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm maybe like, you know, too much of a connoisseur of my own tweets, but I was like, that's, that's the good stuff. Come on. Appreciate that one, everyone. So, um, so just so people have a background to Blair, Angulo, myself, and Dave have a, little side chat that basically 90% of it are Blair and I tweeting or texting Dave saying, this was a phenomenal tweet. Dave, you have brought your A game today. It's never Dave gloating. It's usually just Blair or I sending what tweet sending Sending me screenshots of my own tweets. Of your own uh, tweets. Yeah. And essentially grading you and saying, this was your best work. Oh, wait, no, this was your best work. (laughs) It's really positive. It pumps me up on game day. It's really great. So we're here for. Uh, we're like Jeff Strand, basically. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, it's like it's it's exactly that. Um, who does America want you to be? Um, <laughs> so, uh, all right. So this week, um, so after that, uh, you know, the defense kind of went to bend but don't break against Arizona, which, you know, I I, I go back and forth on it because um, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, and um, I'm speaking to you, but I'm speaking to all the people out there. UCLA is an aggressive defense um, that is very bad at uh, succeeding in the aggression. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are they are terrible at sacking quarterbacks. Um, one of the worst teams in the country, and certainly one of the worst in the Pac-12. Uh, continuing to blitz when you aren't getting home is just about the worst thing you can do as a defense. See ASU's last year under Todd Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, however. Watching that Arizona game, what I was most struck by was how bad the bend but don't break defense was, and the corollary to that is just how bad Arizona's offense is that they couldn't take advantage of it. But there were so many soft gaps in that zone where a better passer with better receivers would have been able to make big plays against eight-man coverage. Um, And I think that's a worry whenever you're going against teams that actually do have some receiving talent, like Washington. you know, like Jalen McMillan, he's he's going to be really good at some point. Maybe it'll be against UCLA. Um, so I I don't know what you do going forward. Do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, it's clear that we're seeing, too, that early in the season, those games where there was the defensive pressure, where the defense seemed to be playing at its best, were against pretty woeful offenses. One where there's been a quarterback change, another where essentially a coach is about to get himself fired two years after winning a national championship. So there, there, there's certainly some measure that even when it was working, was it working or was it just the product you were going up against made it look like it was working? And I don't know. I mean, it, it just feels like after the ASU game, there is this sense of, holy crap, how are you going to stop passing teams? And, you know, newsflash, there's three or four teams that like to air the ball out. Now, this is one of those games where 
Washington doesn't necessarily want to air the ball out. They may try. I was at the Arkansas State game where they tried to go to the air, where it was you know clearly obvious in the Michigan and Montana games that they couldn't get the ball down the field. Then Arkansas State, they chose to, and it worked. But then against Cal, it kind of worked. Against Oregon State, it didn't really work. So... You know, this might be a game where where UCLA's biggest deficiency on defense is kind of where offense's biggest deficiency on offense is. So it may work in UCLA's pressure, but if they're their favorite, but if they're not bringing pressure, if they're not stacking the box, if they're not making Washington beat them through the air, which I'm not 100% convinced that Washington can beat them through the air, then UCLA should be able to escape Seattle with the win. But are we going to see... The def- I mean, to me, this, the Stanford game is the one game that UCLA needs to go back to in terms of from a defensive standpoint. Yeah, there were some broken plays there, but I thought overall that was it feels like that was the last game that the defense was at the top of kind of the mountain a week after the Fresno State game. But I think that that's where offensively Washington mirrors of all of UCLA's early season opponents. They probably mirror Stanford the most. And that was one of their better all around defensive games, all things considered. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that Stanford analogy. Um, that was kind of the thing that jumped out to me just looking at the stats for Washington, even throwing out like the games I've watched of them, um, was that it is very um, kind of Stanford-esque. And that offensive line has had such trouble um, protecting Dylan Morris this year. Uh, I mean, 12 sacks given up. There were, I think it was seven through the first two games against Montana and Michigan, um, then none against Arkansas State, but then five more in the last two games. Um, that's that's not getting better. Um, that's just kind of maintaining. Um, I think they've got uh, maybe some some issues with because that that's a really uh, what stood out to me is it's a really experienced group that was expected to be very good, um, but they're it seems like it's mostly communication issues, like they're missing assignments and stuff like that. And that just, I, I don't know, that's that's offensive prep. That's that's coaching to me. Um, but looking at it, yeah, I mean, I think my general stance on the defense going forward is you're going to have to mix in, mix in some pressure, but it's going to be situational based on the game. I think this is a game that certainly calls for um, more of the like pressure packages and everything. But you have to be ready to pivot. If it's not working... Or if Dylan Morris hits some big plays over the top against, you know, man coverage, you might have to change up. Like, if they've got Max protecting and they're handling your blitzes pretty well in the first quarter or second quarter, you have to switch it back to um, kind of passive coverage. If only just to force Dylan Morris, who's really not very good in the short game, um, force him to just march down the field. Um, And maybe, you know, he makes mistakes because he's thrown six picks this year. Four of them on uh, relatively short passes. So, I don't know. I mean, I think it's this game, yes, you maybe bring some blitzes and see if they was work early. But I think most games, um, they're going to have to get more passive just because um, the pass rush has been so terrible. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been so terrible in base, but it's been even worse when they're blitzing because it forces everyone into man coverage. One of the things with Washington, too, just from a from an offensive standpoint is... They've been, for the most part, pretty good on their opening drive. If you look at the Oregon State game, they drove, uh, I think it was their second, at least in their first two drives. Montana, they scored opening drive, didn't score again. Oregon State, I think it was their second drive. They went down and scored. Then they go into this pattern of just absolute, 
I don't know what, what, what we would call it. What did we call the the Rick Neuhausel offenses when they were running the pistol? The prevent, the prevent the, offense. The, the, the prevent offense, yes, because it certainly is preventing them from scoring. And then they get super conservative and they try to win in the trenches. But it, it reminds me a little bit of you know UCLA's season when Kennedy Palomalu was calling the offensive plays, where schematically. It was clear they wanted to win in the trenches, but personnel-wise, you had recruited offensive linemen that weren't necessarily the, the pro-style guys, and the scheme didn't really work with what the play calling was and what the talent was that you had. So Washington has kind of gotten away. Now, last year it kind of was masked because they only played four games, and you know they got down in one of those so deep that they had to throw the second half to beat Utah, but... I think now people are figuring out what they're doing offensively. And even after their first second drive, I mean, if you look at the Oregon State game, yeah, did they blow a lead? They sure did. But those two touchdowns were scored when they went with their five foot eight pound, 150 pound running back, Sean McGrew, out of the Wildcat, one coming off a turnover inside the red zone. So they were two quick scores, but it wasn't with Dylan Morris under center. It was going Wildcat. So even when they were scoring against Oregon State, it wasn't in the context of their offense. And it just seems like they're, they're, it's an offense without really an identity right now. Without an offense that doesn't necessarily strike fear into anybody. And the problem is, is when you have a defense that isn't striking fear into anybody, which is a far change from what Washington had the last four or five years when Jimmy Lake was the co-DC, or Pete Kwiatkowski was the DC, when Chris Peterson was the head coach. That was an offense that, if you remember the 2018 Pac-12 championship game, I believe they won 10-3 to and they scored on a pick six. The only touchdown in that game was a pick six, and they went to the Rose Bowl. That was a team that they wanted to win with their defense, and the offense was basically out there to give the defense a rest, but the defense did the majority of the work. Even the game that they lost on the road to Cal that year, the defense did their job, and then the Jake Hayner interception uh, turned that thing around. So if you look at it, they've had the defense that if the offense is sputtering, the defense can make it happy. Well, the problem is now that this defense isn't striking fear into anybody, and maybe it changes with you know, ZTF recruiting or, or returning for Washington, uh, Zion, I can't even pronounce the last one, just call him Zion. Uh, the defensive end who was their sack leader a year ago, maybe it changes, but this is his first game in a year. He's still trying to get up to speed, and this defense just isn't really making offenses quake. And you look at the, you just go back to the Montana game. You don't even need to watch the Michigan game or the Cal game where they nearly came back, or even the Oregon State game. Montana, a team of SCS players, pretty much handled. That Washington offensive line, they were getting pressure. They were shutting up, shutting down the run, weren't letting any passing lanes open. But then defensively, they were putting that that Washington defensive line and that front seven on roller skates the whole time. So that's the other thing that, that Washington is, is kind of experiencing this year is that in years past, when the offense hasn't been great, at least they could count on their defense. Well, now they can't count on their defense either. Yeah, and that's the thing where when you start to lose the elite defense that was the backbone of essentially the best of the Chris Peterson era, and you... Look, John Donovan, not a good offensive coordinator and not like a good um, hire at the time. Like, it's, it's it's a peculiar decision um i think we're seeing it from a couple of defensive minded coaches in the league which is justin wilcox and jimmy lake where they hired kind of um pro style man ball um type offensive coordinators because that's their preferred complement to their defenses Mm -hmm. but i think it actually serves to um harm their defensive uh production because 
they're on the field too much because their offenses um, can't, you know, keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. They don't want to go with like tempo spread and the whole thing. But I think there's a, a middle ground between um, what both of those guys did um, and what would actually be an effective um, offense. And uh, they they chose interestingly. I, I think that's the thing that stood out for me is that, um, you, and you brought this up, um, last year, um, the offense, I mean, statistically speaking, I mean, watching it, I didn't think it was any great shakes, but statistically speaking, it was one of the best offenses in the country. Um, I think it was like top 10 in points per drive last year. Um and this year, it's taken such a major step back in all areas. Dylan Morris is a worse player this year than he was last year. Uh, the run game is worse than it was last year. Um, the offensive line is clearly worse than it was last year. And that's just, you really don't want to see that the second year in an offensive scheme. Um, it's like what's happening at Colorado with Carl Durrell. Um, last year, I wouldn't say that offense was great, but it looked fine. Um, but now that he's gotten his, um, you know, he's, he's he's put his touch on it a little bit more. Uh, it's horrendous. Um, and I'm, I'm worried that Washington is headed that way. Um, they just don't, they don't look in sync. They don't look good. Um, now I guess here's, here's the thing is UCLA's defense. If so, if Washington's offense actually scouts this thing correctly, they will go max protect and they will try to hit some deep plays downfield against UCLA's safeties. Um, and the thing is, Washington's offense, like, against Arkansas State, which, again, Arkansas State's very bad. Their defense is very bad. But it looked pretty good. Um, is UCLA's defense, I guess this is the question for you, Brandon, is UCLA's defense bad enough that it can make Washington's offense look good? If we're talking the Fresno State and Arizona State defenses and even the first half of the Arizona game, yes, it absolutely can. It's, a you know, the, the ultimate slumbuster. If we're talking, you know, the first two quarters and I guess the fourth quarter or the last six minutes of the Stanford game, no, I don't think it is. The, the, the thing is, I don't think Washington's offense is as good as Stanford's is. And, I mean, we knew Arizona State's offense could score. We knew that they could move the ball. We knew that Jaden Daniels was electric. We didn't expect Ricky Pearsall to all of a sudden look like a cross between J.J. Stokes slash Jerry Rice slash DeAndre Hopkins. But... <laughs> Here we are. But I also do, you know, I I look at Washington's offense and that was one of the funny things about that Stanford-Oregon game is 95 yards to go with David Shaw calling plays in 2021. There was like eight more passes than runs. And that's like so foreign. Like he's still the kind of guy that even on his own five yard, like, hey, let's run some wildcat here. Where is Tyler Gaffney when we need him? Let's put him in. Like Stanford went to the – there hasn't been anything with Washington's offense that has made me think when it gets down to crunch time, the offense is going to go out and the play calling is going to change, the scheme is going to change, and they're going to get into the tempo, hurry up, we've got a score type of offense. And that's where I, I worry that even with as inefficient as UCLA's defense has been the last four games – is that enough for Washington's offense to get right? I'm just, I'm not 100% sure. And then the other thing, if the weather is, is bad tomorrow night, which it's going to be cold, I don't know that it's going to rain, UCLA should be able to run the ball at will. But the real difference to me, the, the real key to me, is going to happen on the offense side of the ball. This is a game where Dorian Thompson-Robinson needs to tuck in and run, go to the right gap, go to the right hole, and, and run. But I just think that there is... 
I have more confidence in Chip Kelly, and let's just say I'm not super confident in Chip and his offense the last few years, but I have more confidence for him to adjust schematically if he needs to in this game than I am in John Donovan's offense, and therefore I think UCLA's defense can just be good enough to get the win. Now, having said all that, I'm probably jinxing it. Washington probably wins this game because I've now said all those things, but this is a game that you look at it on paper. UCLA should be able to win this game, and their defense should be able to make enough plays because I just don't think Washington's offense is efficient enough to outscore them. I, I think that's fair. Um, I kind of went back and forth on it. Walking into it kind of sight unseen, just basing it off of like what I'd seen from Washington, I was thinking they were going to win by a lot. And then it, it really doesn't make it, do, it doesn't add up to a great matchup for Washington at all. And that and that's on the defensive end, too. I mean, when you look at that defense, sure, there's some elite qualities to that pass defense, but the run defense is uh, completely gettable. Um, mm-hmm. Like UCLA, if the only way Washington is going to be able to stop the run, and this is where um, it's been instructive to look at like the Washington message boards um, and hear their complaints with this defense. Because there's so much of like a chorus when I say, well, they should just stack the box. And they're like, yeah, we've been shouting for that all year. And Jimmy Lake won't break out of his nickel defense. He just will not. Um, This is a game that screams for it. They've had a bye week now to get ready for this. Um, Are they, do you think um, they are going to break tendency and actually adjust to their opponent, uh, UCLA, having an elite running game and a questionable passing game? and stack the box? I think they will because they have some personnel returns this week that should help them. I think it's a the perfect time for them to get right. I think them coming off a bye and bringing guys back, they they will. But will that be enough? That That's the big question. Like, schematically, it should work. I mean, we've seen Jimmy Lake's defenses at work over the last few years, and schematically, it should work. But that was the... Elijah Molden, the, the the defenses that had the personnel that could adjust. And that's the other thing with this Washington team, offensively and defensively. It doesn't seem like the talent's as elite as it was when Chris Peterson was there. So even if they stack the box and even if they do all of these things, you know, is that going to be enough? Or did we start to get a better sense of, you know, UCLA's offensive line capabilities and, you know, just kind of them coming back into cohesiveness, the snap all uh, notwithstanding, uh, but I, I think that even if Washington stacks the box, they tried to do that against Montana, and Montana was still gashing them for big plays. So that's the thing: you could do what you want schematically, but if the personnel's not matching what your scheme is calling for, it won't matter. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, potentially right. Um, I think it's going to come down to whether. Um, I think that that talent argument is interesting one because it's going to come down to, you know, Washington's, you know, six or seven they put in the box or eight maybe in certain situations is are they going to be able to outman um, UCLA up front? Um, Because I think Chip's going to try to run the ball. I mean, it's going to make sense for him to. But he has zigged when we've expected him to zag before. So maybe Dorian Thompson Robinson goes out there and throws the ball 45 times. Um, Yeah. what are the odds? Because what we're talking about here makes me feel like it's a real high possibility. What are the odds we are staring at like a 14 to 12 game at the end of this one? I would not be shocked in the least. I, I frankly think this game will be 
two teams that will score less than 21 points. I think it'll end up being like 21-17-ish, but it will be like the biggest rock. You ever seen the movie Daddy's Home 2? <laughs> no. Okay, well, there's a scene in it where there's like a snowball fight between John Cena and Will Ferrell that like neither could actually hit their target, and Will Ferrell's like faking like he's gonna throw it, but he still won't release. It's gonna be like that. It's gonna be kind of a pathetic snowball fight where nobody really gets hurt, and it's gonna be an uninspiring 21-14 game. Unlike you know when you have some of these SEC games in the old days where it was like an outstanding nine to six game, this will be a pretty uninspiring twenty, and especially if the weather. Gets bad. Now, I will say that I am bad luck for weather. I The last game that I covered for 24-7 in Husky Stadium was the Cal versus Washington Lightning delay game. That was two and a half hours and I think ended at one in the morning. Uh, the weather is supposed to be pretty terrible on Saturday. I don't know that it'll rain, but it's, you know, it's Washington. Always expected to rain. If this game gets rain, you know, rained out a little bit, I mean, this game could get even uglier. So 14 to 12 isn't out of the question at all. I'm excited for 14-12. It'll be fun to see how they get to 12, mm-hmm. whichever team ends up with 12. Um, okay, well, that's fun. Uh, a, a pathetic snowball fight. I think that's mm-hmm. going to be a great description of this game. Um, if it ends up looking like that, I will 100% use that. Um, okay, well, switching gears a little bit, uh, just briefly mention, uh, UCLA basketball uh, was picked, was it unanimously to be the uh, winner of the Pac-12 this year? I think so. Or did Oregon get one vote? Close enough to unanimous that it doesn't really matter. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, more uh, more gas, more more hot air blown up uh, UCLA's butts, which whatever, it'll be fine. Right? When has, when has a UCLA team ever struggled after getting a lot of preseason hype? Never. Never. I can't think of one. So um, I think it's going to be fine. Um, I'm not nervous about it at all. Um, but Brandon, I have you here, so it's incumbent upon me to ask you about football recruiting, um, specifically David Bailey. Talk to me about him. Talk to me about the, uh, the visit situation. So David Bailey is the, uh, you could make a case that he is the top player in California overall uh, this year, especially with his teammate Damani Jackson out for the season. Um, David Bailey is one of the premier linebackers in the country just regardless of class um an elite player that ucla had offered now what's interesting about him is he does not have social media he does not use social media he doesn't have instagram he doesn't have twitter so where we are able to psychoanalyze many of these recruits every year because of their instagram posts or their tweets or the pictures the graphics that they're getting David Bailey does not allow for that. So he had kind of an eclectic top five at one point of visits where it was like Stanford, UCLA. Okay, that makes sense. Cal, yeah, Oregon, USC, that makes sense. But then there was Oregon State that was kind of hanging out in there. And it just kind of, you know, par for the course. It, very much like Sean Ryan was. Um, if, if people remember Sean Ryan, he didn't really use his social media profile very much. I think until he committed. Um, David Bailey was like that where... It was a pretty, you know, he's been pretty low key. So it was much to everybody's surprise when we found out that he took an official visit for the Arizona State game two weeks ago. And of all the games for UCLA to show off their newfangled defense that was going (laughs) to show a pulse, that was a great game to bring David Bailey in so he could see that defense absolutely get carved up. Now, 
this is a question that's been asked a bunch of times over the years on the message board between the when I post the recruits list for every game, the over under being at 10 minutes when somebody says there's not enough linemen coming. The second question is we lost the recruits not coming. Listen, fans, recruits are much less wrapped up in the wins and losses than you are as a fan. While it might ruin your week, your month, your year, your next 20 years. The recruits are kind of like, cool, man, I had a great time. And boy, that defense sucks. I can go in and start next year. That's how they look at so much of this. I mean, just look at how SC has been able to have commits after the Oregon State game, you know, after the Stanford game when they fired the coach. So David Bailey being there for Arizona State was not as obviously you, you would have liked for them to win if you're a UCLA fan, but it didn't hurt them. So he took the visit and absolutely loved the visit. His, his host, interestingly enough, was John John Bonds, who played at St. John Bosco. And this visit was the day after the modern day Bosco game. So it's kind of interesting timing, but it was huge for UCLA to get him on campus for the official, especially because he had also been at the LSU game, uh, which the crowd was great for that one. The obviously the uh, recruit focus that weekend was, was big. So you know, there was still kind of the lingering LSU effect in there. That said, they still have to, you know, deal with Stanford as well as USC and Oregon. They're all in. And I mean, by no means did this visit sway him towards UCLA. It certainly helped, but Stanford is still kind of the wild card there. I think both of his parents are surgeons. He's got a brother in law school. So academia, that's a big reason why he doesn't have social media. Academia is very important to him as well. So Stanford still is a school to keep an eye on. I mean, they've got two of the more impressive wins. If you really think about it this year in the Pac-12, going on the road to beat USC and getting Clay Hilton fired. We didn't think anybody could do that, yet Stanford did. Uh, and that wasn't beat USC. It was get Clay Hilton fired. We thought that guy was going to be... I mean, that was like Steve Lavinish, how many fires that guy seemed to avoid. Uh, but then they go on the, you know, they go home and they beat Oregon. So, you know, Stanford is showing that they're, you know, pretty average this year, which is good because I think a lot of people thought they'd be pretty bad. But the one thing that Stanford always has going for them, I remember when Curtis Robinson picked Stanford over UCLA a few years ago, his mom was a professor at UCLA. So you would have thought, oh, well, that's going to help. But no, it's clear that sometimes the academics at Stanford usurp everything and I think that's where it's at with David Bailey right now where there's still a strong Stanford presence in this recruitment but considering it looked like UCLA was never even on his real short list to get him to come to two games one on an official one on an unofficial is huge and I think it's certainly something and Jason Kafusi is leading the recruitment of Bailey and he's had some great success since he's been at UCLA so I think UCLA's got the right people on this recruitment the right people in place but there's still some you know, questions of can they overtake Stanford? Can they overtake USC, which has had a number of modern day players come over the year? And then Oregon, which is kind of the hot cheek program in the Pac-12 right now. They've got their work cut out for them. Well, I mean, but you've got to take some heart of hope in the um, in how many battles that UCLA has won against a combination of Stanford, USC, and Oregon over the years. I mean, I can think of none. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's got to be good, right? Especially for an academic-minded kid to pick UCLA over Stanford. That happens all the time, right? Jordan Zumwalt in 2010, I think, is the last time they actually really keely flipped. I mean, I guess you could say Josh Moore last year when he decommitted from Stanford, then committed sure. to SC. And then so, I mean, shoot, they beat two people for him last year if you really get down to it. But, you know, let's be honest. You, you are absolutely right. And, and that's the thing, like... What you don't want to have happen is you bring in a kid of that caliber 
and he still has two other official visits to take. I mean, that that's where it gets really hard. And I, I've never been a, the mindset that, you know, when you have, you know, guys in and you don't get the last visit, that nullifies all of your chances. He's already visited Stanford for the officials. So, uh, you know, that's not the worry. But it's like Stanford is still there. He took the visit and yet Stanford is still there. If you're a coach, if you're a fan, you want that visit to your school to be so overwhelming that the biggest threat is no longer mentioned. But that's not the case. And he still has two official visits to take, which will be to Oregon and USC. No good. Um, But... I think there is a pitch here. I mean, and I think it was actually that ASU game is a great indication of it. We need an edge guy. Like, you could step right in and you can be our Anthony Barr or whatever um, because they're they're not getting anything with their base pass rush. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that pitch is compelling along with some other stuff. Um, hey, we're for Rashawn Evans. You know, that hey, you could start <laughs> at – Anthony Barr spot next year. Oh, you, you're going to wait till your fourth year to be a starter at Alabama? Oh, you only start one year and still be a first-round pick? Oh, okay, I, we get it. Honestly, it's such a great pitch that Alabama has, which is, hey, you actually don't have to play that much football. We're mm-hmm. going to give you such a spotlight that you get to not take the hits for three years, and then you're going to come in, you're going to start one year, you're going to play maybe the first halves to first three quarters of games, and then you're going to go and uh, and go be an NFL first rounder. You yep. make a lot of money. You get to like go to the such, green. It's it's so good. Yeah, like they've got the, the best pitch in football. They're like those new cars that still have great new tires on them too. And you're like, dude, we don't have to replace these things for like four more years. It's, it's like a for the thinking man's football player, it's totally the place to go because it's like, hey, come here. Don't play football for a while. Mm-hmm. Like it's this is great. Um, you only need one. You know what they say? You only, you just need one shot. Literally, Alabama, they give you one shot, and then they usually <laughs> turn it into a first-round pick. It's incredible. Um, all right. Well, I've got nothing else. Brandon, you got anything else? I just want to go back to the Rashawn Evans, Nick Saban recruitment <laughs> because that was one that always just makes you realize, you know, it's, that was about the, the, at the peak of the broadcast with uh, you and I when we were covering that 2014 recruiting cycle yeah. and the infamous signing day of 2014. But I, I've used that analogy a lot. And, you know, that recruitment, if people remember, it was Auburn, Alabama and UCLA. His dad played at Auburn with Bo Jackson. He went to Auburn High School and they were just coming off playing for a national championship, whereas UCLA had just featured Anthony Barr for two years at that position. Essentially, he was going to be handed a spot at that position. And what ends up happening? Nick Saban goes and dances with him. And people thought he was going to go to UCLA. People thought he might go to – dude, the second Nick Saban got on that dance floor and busted it out – they had it, but that—that's the difference. And you know, you mentioned basketball a little earlier. That's kind of where you want UCLA basketball to be in the next three to five years, where everything else looks like it makes sense. But guys, understand, like, hey, I only need one tournament run at UCLA, and I've got the NIL, especially with NIL involved. That you know, I don't need to go to this school that could use a superstar. I could—I don't need to go to this school that really needs a superstar. I can go to this team that's got 57 superstars wait my turn shine and then i'm gone oh yeah and i think uh i think that's sort of what i mean mick's got a great pitch just with johnny juzang and Mm -hmm. yeah it may be a little unfair but it's like yeah look what johnny did at kentucky and then look what he did here Mm -hmm. it's just you know that's 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 all me that's all that's all mickey baby 
Plus, um, I just felt like it was important to bring up the 2014 recruiting signing day for people thank to you. ever remember. Yeah, what, I needed to think about that some more. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. if you remember, the best part about the 2014 recruiting day is it wasn't until the next year, that signing day, when UCLA football began its implosion, starting roughly around the time that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution <laughs> was breaking news about Roquan Smith not signing because Jeff Ulbrich was leaving and... A few hours later, JoJo Wicker picked Arizona State. Iman Marshall picked USC. Diddy's getting a kettleball swung at his head. Adrian Clem's being suspended. It all started right after Roquan Smith put those hands up. Because if you look that morning, actually it started that morning. Chris Clark and Soso Jamabo announced for UCLA on national television. Number one at their respective positions. And then Roquan Smith puts the UCLA gloves on. Has UCLA been football been right since that morning in 2015? No, I would say the 2014 class is what broke Mora, though. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he was a broken shell of a man after that. Um, But 2015, uh, that was where, that's where it became obvious. But yeah, no, nothing has ever been right since, um, since, since that, that beautiful day. I'm never going to be let back on this, am I, if I keep bringing up those two recruiting classes then? No, no, no. It was, uh, it was not ideal. Not ideal. Far from ideal. I love it. Um, all right, Brandon, this is great. We should do it again sometime. Let's do it, let's do it again if I'm allowed back after you know going yeah, there. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, for Brandon Huffman, he's going to have a great time. Uh, you're going to the game, right, tomorrow? I'm g- going to the game, covering it for bro with old Tracy Pearson, and I will be seeing some bros tonight at the Optimism Brewing Little Bro Meetup. I'll let you guys all buy me beer. Woo! All right. Well, for Brandon Huffman, I'm David Woods, Bruno Port Online, and we will talk to you again next time.